0: Amen. That was like a choir, wasn't it? Choir presentation, all those strong voices. Who is like the Lord our God? Well, we know no one. So then it's our job to figure out well, then what is God like if nobody's like him? And our psalm this morning will help us determine and understand what God is like. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to New Covenant Fellowship. It's A blessing to have you here with us this morning. I love this church. Um, I just as they were singing and I was listening to the voices lifted up to the Lord and uh, the different uh, ages there that were represented. And I just kind of looking out and um, I see Quincy and Jesse in the way, way back sitting in our sample chairs with the tags still on them. And I'm thinking, I love this church. And then Ashley's here in the front. She's a good friend of Abigail. Abigail's not here this morning. Here's Ashley this morning with us. And we have um, a few visitors that we haven't seen for a while. And then the Woods neighbors and they bring Lynn here. And it's just there's so much going on and people from out of town and family and friends. It's just a beautiful place to be uh, this morning. And as you know, today is the first Sunday of the month. And we change things up a little bit to keep us, I guess, on our spiritual toes. And we have our bulk of our praise time after the sermon. And then we come as a family of God, as the saints of God, and we commune with God, the Holy Spirit at the Lord's Supper. And the other thing we do a little different is that we break from our regular study of our Bible book. And we usually do a series or something like that. And we are in the Psalms. This is sermon number 27. So we've had 27 sermons on the Psalms, there's a lot more Psalms in that, and I don't intend to cover them all, uh, but they cover an array of topics. And this morning, I've entitled the message, Is God Needy? Is God needy? Does he need anything? What kind of what is who is like the Lord our God and what is he like? Well, in order to kind of prepare our minds for the setting of this passage, I want us to use our imaginations a little bit. I remember, I think it was in kindergarten that my teacher used to say, "Okay, kids, let's put our thinking caps on. I don't know if your teacher ever said that, but she would she would model. Let's put our thinking caps on. And uh, I would be thinking I left mine at home. I've got my play cap, though. Uh, I don't really like my thinking cap because it makes my head hurt to have to think. But I want us to put our imagination caps on this morning. As we prepare for this, as I kind of just set a scenario of what this psalm is all about. And it is Psalm 50. So, for, at least for those of you that can read. Or of that age. But so imagine yourself or picture yourself in your favorite chair. In your favorite room of the house and you're thumbing through the paper, the local newspaper. And something catches your eye to the point where you you do a double take and you think, did I just see what I think I just saw in my local paper? And you see this headline, a fairly bold headline, not front page, but a headline that says local man to be tried for misrepresenting God. And you think, Am I, is this some kind of joke? Am I really seeing this in my local paper this day and age? So your your interest is really, really. And you you go on to read the article, and of course the article says that for legal purposes the person's name has been withheld. And it goes on to talk about how uh, this person, um, the way this person worships God and lives their life before God actually does not honor him, but dishonors him. And you think. To yourself, Can I really be reading this? Who is this person And And what are they talking about here? And you go on to read the article and surprisingly it was very well written, very well documented and detailed, lots of scripture in it. And by the time you finish reading the article, you're like, I want to go to this trial because, yeah, this person has misrepresented God and that's not right. And you're a true believer so you know what it means to truly worship God and to truly honor God. And you have just read where this person is totally misrepresenting them. In, in a very substantiated, well-written article from a Christian perspective. And so you want to kind of go to the courtroom and go God, be on God's side. And see what happens with this very, very unusual case. You agree that this man, whoever he is. Needs to be held accountable. So if anyone knows the difference between true worship, false worship, good representation and bad representation, it's you. You want to make sure that things are done right. So the court day comes. You're very interested, very supportive of the Lord. You arrive at court early, of course, because you want to get a good seat to make sure you can hear every Juicy detail of what goes down. And then you're there early enough to watch other people come in that sit in the seats and then the court officials and so forth. They arrive at court and finally the time comes as the officials take their place and the bailiff shouts or says all rise and people rise and they go through the proper protocol. And the judge pounds the gavel and says court is now In session, and your adrenaline begins to peak because you are really excited and curious about how this is all going to turn out with this person. The judge says, looks out into the crowd and says, Will the defendant who's been charged with misrepresenting God please come forward? And you're there. And you notice that nobody moves. So the judge says, will the defendant who's been charged with misrepresenting God, please come forward? And there's a few people fidget a little bit, but nobody moves. And for a third time, the judge says, will the defendant who has been charged with improperly misrepresenting God, please come forward? And only this time you notice that he is looking right at you. And then you kind of, without being seen, look to the left and look into the right. And everybody in there is looking at you. And your mind just races and you're you're flooded with all these different thoughts like me. How could I not know about this and. How could they dare think that I would misrepresent God if if anybody knows how to give, if anybody knows how to sing, anybody knows how to be generous and offer themselves devoutly to the Lord? It's me and I'm a true believer. I'm just wondering about their salvation. You have all these different thoughts that coming into your your head and, and can true worshipers, I mean, the people who do it right. Can they even be put on trial? Would God even put a saint, a true saint on trial And judge him or her for the way they think and for the way they represent him on this earth. Well, that's the question that we're going to look at this morning in Psalm 50. And that's the end of my service uh, story. It served its purpose. It's over. Now we're going to transition into Psalm 50 as we wrestle with this idea of what what would it be like when you as a true believer who believes in just uh, judgment and believes in justice and wants to see God worshipped properly, find yourself in the judgment seat under God's scrutiny. Can that even happen? And if it does, wh- what would it look like? And that's what our psalmist introduces us to this morning. I want to introduce actually this Old Testament psalm of 50 by quoting a new testament verse out of 1st peter chapter 4 verse 17 for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of god and if it begins with us what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of god according to scripture there's there's times when The leader or the head of the household finds judgment or fault in his own house and takes his own household to court. And today we will see a courtroom scene, hear God speak. And what I want us to find in this psalm is the charge, the sentence, the correction. And the goal, there's 23 verses and we will read the entire psalm. This is a psalm of Asaph, Psalm 50, verses one through twenty three. The mighty one, God, the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silent. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. For your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves in the fields is mine. And if I were hungry, I would not tell you. All, I'm sorry. All that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And so you have here the picture of a pretty dramatic courtroom. With a scene of people on trial and he is speaking mostly metaphorically. But you know that something like something similar actually took place in history on Mount Sinai where God's voice boomed and there was thunder and there was lightning that God used to get people's attention and to uh, teach them the severity of what was happening, the severity of his holiness and his law and their sin And what all is involved just to be in the presence of a holy God and a righteous God. And so this is, in essence, has happened before. He reiterates this and then out of respect, the psalmist in addressing God uh, uses three of his holiest divine names just to elevate how righteous he is and how worthy he is to judge his people. We have the mighty God, uh, the mighty one God, the Lord The L speaks of the mighty one. Elohim speaks of God as the object of sacred fear. And then Jehovah as the covenant making God, self-existing God. This God is summoning the entire creation, all those above, all those below. Everything that is in existence that he brought into existence is being called To account from the rising to the setting of the sun. All are accountable to Him. And just like in my opening story, I think in this Psalm there is a surprising turning point. Uh, The people that are on trial is rather surprising because, especially as believers, we're all about judging the wicked. Get them, God. They're evil. They're ruining our world, they're ruining our churches, they're ruining our communities, they're ruining our faith. Those evil people, they don't believe in you and I want your judgment to fall heavy upon them. So I'm all pumped up about this court case. And then what we find is rather than the unbelieving wicked or the believing wicked. They're the ones that God is calling to account. We're not used to hearing that his own people, his own kids of his household. We find that in verse four, my faithful ones who made a covenant with me, who, who shed blood in this covenant with me. What has happened? What's the indictment? What's what's the, the, the charge? What is God so upset about that he would summon all of creation to witness this scene? Well, the people, his people, his kids, if you will, they have formed a wrong view of him in their worship of him. They formed a wrong view of him, and because they have a wrong idea of what he's like. And what he likes, they are worshiping him in a wrong way. And the way that we view God and what we know, think we know about God is what drives how we act in front of him, our physical manifestations. The choices that we make are based on what we think God would like or or dislike. And if we have a wrong view of who he really is, then we will wrongly worship him. And that is exactly what has taken place in this scene among God's own people. God wants to be worshipped in the right way. Uh, The the Ten Commandments really is about worshipping the right God in the right way, because people can spend a lot of time and energy worshipping the wrong God in the wrong way or the right God in the wrong way. So it's a courtroom scene. Heavens are like the roof and the earth is like the floor. God's the judge. He's the bailiff. Uh, he's he's the witness that bears testimony against the defendant. And he's the judge here. O my people, I will speak and testify against you. I am your God. And so let's examine this courtroom scene. Dig a little deeper about the charge. In essence, the wrong view of God. This charge—they're insulting God with their worship—and and rather than the beautiful, uh, the beautiful event or process of worship that is designed specifically. And very detailed in such a way, because God knows what He likes to offer Him praise and glory. It has been twisted and perverted by wrong thinking, and rather than bringing Him honor, all that they're doing actually dishonors Him and and insults Him. And that's the charge: you're insulting Me, rather than worshiping Me. And it's not the offering, and He says you're you're bringing your finest animals and grains. But when you bring them, it's the mindset that's on trial. I'm, in, I'm offended by that mindset. And they, they've taken the good habit of giving to God generously and making sacrifices. They've taken that good habit of generous giving and made it into a bad habit of thinking that God needed their sacrifices, that God needed their offerings. So the insult or the charge is that God is saying when you bring your offerings, which you're faithfully doing, you're bringing them in such a way as you think that you're doing me a favor. You think that I actually need these in order to be the God that I am in order to stay powerful, in order to stay strong, in order to stay on top. So you're coming with this attitude that your sacrifices and the the way you worship and what you offer God is of great importance to the effect that it affects the very character of God or sustains this God. You think that what you're doing is what's giving me my ability to reign and rule as God. Your view of your worship and yourself and your offering is is too elevated. See, God's people in our worship of God, we learn in scriptures that, yeah, it's possible even for God's people to veer a little too far to the right and get off track or veer a little too far to the left and get off track to where we're not. To where we're falling short of the glory of God. We're not hitting the mark. So the fatted calf and the goats and the grains are brought before him. With this idea that you need this, God, you're dependent. You're dependent upon me, my offerings. The quality of my worship. The scripture is constantly telling us to guard our hearts and the ideas that come into our head, thoughts to guard them, to to test them against God's revealed word scripture that's been tested and proven for thousands of years. Bring them before the community, bring them before those that are gifted. We we don't want to just let our thoughts run because even whole communities can get off track. In their worship, we see this even in our day and age, where one scripture taken out of context becomes the whole basis of a cult. We've read this verse many times in Proverbs 423, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Scripture's constantly saying you have to be alert. You have to. I know it's hard. I know. And it's much easier to sit there and, and just mindlessly and brainlessly take things in. But you have to be on your guard. You have to watch out because there's a battle going on and you're going to get hit in the head so many times if you don't have your helmet of salvation on that, you're not going to know what way is up and down. And it can affect us theologically as well. We want to be tight knit. So that's the charge. The sentence for this insult. Verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats From your folds. I don't receive these. Based on the mindset that you bring. Them. And I've I've offered you in my word. This prescription of how to worship me rightly. How to express. If you have love for me. If you have gratitude. If you have devotion for me. I've prescribed how to offer that to me. In a way that is honoring and pleasing. And you bring your worldly thinking and your fleshly desires in with it and it just falls flat. It nullifies the whole purpose and intention of the sacrificial system and the offerings. They're not serving that purpose. And so I do not accept them when you come and offer them to me thinking that I'm something that I'm not. And then he goes into detail, which I really appreciate because, you know, God doesn't tell us everything about himself. He's just too big and glorious and majestic and there will be there will remain mysteries. We just have to live with that. We're not going to get answers to every question. But When God reveals himself very specifically in ways and and touches on his heart, we really need to pay attention. And I think in this psalm we have a little nugget of what God is looking for as he thinks about his community of people that worship before him. He reveals himself and he enjoys revealing himself and he wants to be loved and he wants to be enjoyed and he tells us how to do that. So from God's perspective, here's how he sees what's happening. Verses 12 and 13, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? See, what he's saying is you you think I'm really hungry. You think I really need this food. I really need your offerings. Um, You look at me as if I'm dependent upon you for my sustenance. uh, To keep from sinking on earth, to stay in heaven, perhaps like like you're actually meeting my needs that I have hunger pains that you need to satisfy. And so in a sense, he's reasoning with his people. Now, think, this thing, follow me along with this and think about this. He said, if, if if I did get hungry, would I need your animals? When I own everything, I own everything. I own every animal that <laughs> that I would care to eat in the event that I did get hungry. I don't need to get it from you. So how does that work? All, all that is in the world is already mine. And secondly, I don't get hungry. <laughs> You're the one that needs the beef. Where's the beef? You need the beef. You need to be satisfied. You get the hunger pains. You can't go but so long without food and drink and water and so forth. That's not me. So this idea of Uh, Somehow that I'm at a loss without what you bring to the table is very insulting. Because I am self-existing, self-sufficient. I need absolutely nothing. I I am needy. I am not needy in any physical way, in any spiritual way, in any emotional way. There's no neediness to me. Everything is filled to the brim with perfection and satisfaction. I'm never lacking. I don't ever need recharging, refueling, rewinding, refilling, re-whatever. I don't need that. And Paul says in Acts 17, 24 and 25, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything had the same problem in Paul's day. It creeps up. It can creep up on us if we're not careful. That in our worship, in our church attendance, in our tithing, in our manifesting the gifts that God has invested in us, in our leadership, preaching, teaching, whatever it is, that God would crumble. If I did not do what I'm doing, if I did not serve him in the way that I'm serving, if I wasn't so generous with my time or my energy. It just crumble this whole thing. And God would be lacking. And the whole, of course, the whole temple design and the purpose of the sacrifice, it's it's all very, very important in revealing who God is, but it has an intended purpose. And the intended purpose is not to feed God. And it's not to make God or, or help God keep being God. He doesn't need that. He doesn't have to run to the temple for shelter when there's a, a storm outside. We learn in Matthew 22 very recently through Jesus when the Jewish leaders tried to corner him and get him to hang himself with his own words by posing difficult questions that you can't have a right answer to. When they said, should we give our taxes to Caesar or to God or our or tithe or money? Who do we support? And in answering that question, we find out something very interesting when he says, give to Caesar what Caesar's and God what God. Well, everything in the in the big picture is God's. The only reason Caesar has anything, any honor, the only reason he's in a pos- position of power or has possessions is because of God. So ultimately, we're giving to God. He has all things. He owns all things. So anything that we have uh, is derivative. It's derivative. And he can do with it what he pleases. And Job kindly reminds us. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, not just gives. He takes away. It's all his to do as he pleases. See, these are things as believers that we have to know. And he reveals and we need to know these things as we sit there. What is our mindset this morning? Who do we think God is and who do we think we are in his presence? And I know your heart is to worship him. I know your heart is to love him. And to seek after him. And the psalmist, through this holy inspiration, kindly leads us in this. But we get ourselves in big trouble If we think in any way that we have something that has God eating out of our hand. No matter how mighty our service may be. When we put money in the plate as important as that is, or when we we give the Lord our whatever possession we might have or our time or our heart, we serve him, we give a glass of cold water to a person in need or a meal. We're just serving God as stewards. We're stewards of what is already His. In a sense, we're putting back into God's hands what He temporarily put into our hands. So we're God's people in this scene, in God's courtroom. And God, the judge, He's He's issued the charge. And he's issued the sentence. And so. Might be a little stuffy. Because we've know we know we, if we're in that courtroom, we know we have done wrong. It's getting really claustrophobic and we need a little bit of relief. How do I get out of this? How do I get out of the hot seat? And God gives us that. Through discipline, loving discipline and correction. And he gives three Remedies. To this wayward kind of worship and this wayward kind of thinking rather than just leave them, leaving them hanging the merciful, gracious God. Gives remedies. We find three in verses 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. There's one perform your vows to the most high. He's telling them what to do. There's two. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. There's three. So first of all, let's look at what God is revealing his heart. And this is what he's looking for in order for true God pleasing worship to take place, to keep to keep our hearts guarded and our minds guarded. Thanksgiving. When you come before God, whatever you're giving him, whatever we are offering to him. We need to offer it with an attitude or a mindset of thanksgiving. Why? Because we wouldn't even have it to offer him if he did not first give it to us. It's not really that we're bringing all that we have to give to God because we've earned it and we've worked so hard for it. The only reason we have anything to offer God is because he's graciously given it to us, So really, we're thanking Him because He's the real giver when worship takes place. You know that every song you sing to the Lord, you sing it with the breath that God has given you? You can't sing to the Lord without the sovereign power of God working in your body. You won't have a desire in your heart to mind to even want to sing praise to Him if God has not done a miraculous thing in your heart and mind. Everything that we come before God with. No matter if it's abroad or here, we only have that desire. We only have that possession. We only have that power because God has given it to us. It does not spring from our own goodness or our own nature. It's brought into existence by God. And so God says, if you're going to worship me, realize that everything you just poured out to me, and I appreciate it and I love it, but realize. That I gave it to you. And so come before me with thanksgiving. That honors me. That's a correction. Anything less is insulting. And then he says, and pay your vows. And every once in a while in Scripture, we we get this teaching in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, pay your vows, keep your vows. What is this vow stuff? Is it okay? Is it defunct? Is it something we need to get rid of in the Old Testament? Well, vows are a part of getting to know the Lord. And and basically what Jesus comes around and teaches us is it's just a matter of tell the truth. (laughs) Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because even believers, as we learned recently, even the Jewish leaders, uh, they had their own system of lying. Actually, they had grades of truth uh, when they made commitments, even to the Lord or to each other. It's kind of like with their fingers crossed behind their backs. I didn't. It's not to be taken really seriously. Only when I say it in this way is it to be taken seriously. And it's just a, it's just a mess because nobody knows okay, when can I even trust you if you're going to pull that on me. And so God's just saying. Be a person of integrity. Be honest when you speak to one another and when you talk to me. Speak truthfully. Don't give me all the shades of different things. Is it okay to make vows? Sure, if you intend to keep it. Don't just talk big in front of others and make promises that you can't keep. Really promises, this whole idea of, of commitments and promises and vows to one another It's very necessary for us to even have any kind of meaningful relationship. Because what am I getting myself into here? What kind of person are you? What kind of person are you, God? And what kind of person am I? Am I the kind of person where I say, hey, I'll meet you at five o'clock. It's real important. I'm going to clear my schedule. I'm here at five o'clock and you're not. Now, I just learned something about you and how faithful you are. I just learned what you think about me and my time. See, it's all getting to know each other. Now, we know How faithful God is. And he wants to cultivate faithfulness and truthfulness in us. So when we talk to God, and sometimes we do, and we go off track a little bit in our own world, in our own relationship, and where where we want to find God in the situation. And so we might make a promise to him. Out of our own volition, our own desire. I love you so much. I'm going to promise you this. I'm going to do this. It might be a little teeny thing. I'm going to give you an extra dollar in the offering plate based on whatever this week. It's okay as long as we do it. That's how we get to know God and that's how he gets to know us. I rarely make vows to God, honestly, because I don't trust myself. I'm very cautious. I'm not always throwing out all these vows because I'm like, well, I kind of know myself and I'm like 90 percent. Sure, but that other 10%. But there are times where I have made vows. And long ago, I'll give you one just one example. Um, Pretty young in the Lord. And uh, I got saved dramatically. God just pulled me out of the stickiest, muddy mess of a life that I would made for myself. And he just cleaned me up and brought me before himself. Opened my eyes to meaning and truth and to his presence. But I still had a lot of desire for sin. And it was just... I had a really, I had a gift at making a mess in my life. I just, God would bless me and then I would make the dumbest decisions. I mean, everything in Proverbs, it tells you don't do. I did. So that, what that means is that the first several years of my Christianity was me just, God save me. God save me. I've made a mess. Look at this. Please save me. And He did. He was so faithful. And finally, I think, I don't know, two or three years, I'm not good with details like John Rosima, Who, ten months after I was born, put on his army uniform in 1965, April, I found out this morning. I was born in June. Anyway, I'm not much for details, but um, so God had just been delivering me and delivering me. and And, and then I was kind of revived. I was in this state where he had delivered me and I was revived and I was so wowed at what God could do and can't even believe that he had anything to do with me after so many failures. And I remember at this particular prayer time in my room in Maryland at home, I said, you know what, God, I'm always crying out to you. What asking you to do this for me and do this for me. And I got myself in a mess. Please say me, say me. And it just dawned on me for the first time probably in like three years of Christianity. What can I do for you? And I I mean, I was ready for anything. That's how much I loved God at that moment. And you're going to think this is silly. But again, this kind of stuff is just what's important to you in your life and where you are. The first thing came to my mind was give up your chewing tobacco. So I used to chew tobacco. It was a bad habit. It was an addiction. I loved it. And if it was not for this vow, I would probably have a spit cup up here. But I don't know. That might be an exaggeration. I don't know. But I really, I just, it was one of those things I enjoyed. And um, it was like, that's what he brought to my mind. And I said, all right. Whatever. That, if that's what you want me to give up. You know, and I had tried to give it up for health reasons several times before that. You know, you go to the dentist and he's looking around. And he's like, yeah, your gums. And yeah, no cancer yet. No cancer yet. Maybe next time. So I'm thinking, I got to quit this stuff. It causes mouth cancer and, and and but it never. So there was times where um, I would take at this time it was Copenhagen snuff. Um, and I would like man, I got to quit this. That's it. it's my last one. And I take the can and I'd walk out into our parking lot. And it's kind of up on a hill and down is the pasture. And I throw it as far as I can in the pasture. And there it goes. And I quit and I walk away. And about three hours later, I'm down on my hands and knees looking through the grass. Where is that can of snuff? And so I did that a few times, but this time this was different. I mean, the God who saves. And so I just said, God, whatever. And that came to my mind. I said, all right. And I walked out like I did many times before and I threw it out into the pasture and into the grass it went. And I'm a Assuming it's gone. I did not go back looking for it. And to this very day, I have not had a chew, a dip, any tobacco in my mouth. Because I made a commitment to God. Because of how good he is to me. And that's just me. That's my little world. And I know you have your world. And there's things like that. But I said, "Okay, God, if you want that part of me, you know how important it is to me, as silly it is to others. I give it to you here. It's yours. It's yours forever. I'm not going back in this situation. And I haven't. See, that kind of stuff is important in relationships, right? It's important with our relationship with God. God loves a promise keeper. And I made another vow. To God about. Two years after that. And it was actually 31 years ago, Tuesday. When before God and before man, I stood on an altar and some of you were there 31 years ago. It's been that long when I vowed to be a faithful husband to my wife. And she vowed before God and man, you as witnesses, to be a faithful wife. And we've kept those vows. Truthfulness, integrity, making promises, saying what you mean. You would not believe how strong it makes people, how strong it makes communities. It just brings reliability and steadfastness to a broken world. So God says one of the remedies in your worship is be honest and keep your vows John Piper Piper said, a vow is a promise you make to God when you are in trouble. I made a vow one time when I was a junior in college. I said, Lord, if you will help me get through this public prayer in chapel without my voice closing up because of nervousness, I will never again turn down a speaking opportunity out of fear. John Piper said that. And then third, offer thanksgiving, keep your vows and third, depend on God. That's what he says. Call on me. Depend on me. And verse 13, 15. And uh, in the day of trouble, I'll deliver you and you shall glorify me. The idea is this. It's putting worship in the proper perspective with our sacrifices and our offerings, just Know this and don't lose sight of this guy saying, I'm the savior. You call to me and I enjoy it. And I that's my character. But I'm the one I'm the mighty one. Know that you're the one that's in need and I'm the one that can help you in that need. You're the one that's facing trouble. I'm the one that can rescue out of that trouble. You're the one that's in an impossible situation. I'm the one that can. Solve this impossible situation. You don't need to bail, bail me out. I bail you out. That's the mindset in, in, in our times of praise and worship. As we sit before him. Uh, you don't need to nourish me. You need my nourishment. I don't need what you have to offer. You need what I have to offer. And I'm here for you. I am infinitely resourceful and know that when you come before me and when you call on me, I am actually in a position to help you. I have everything at my fingertips. That's a relationship. So thank me. Keep your vows and call on me. You know, greatness is dependence upon God. And I know that in our world, we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. Is this idea that if we're independent, we don't need anybody. I don't need anything from you. I don't need God. I can get through by myself. That's the exact opposite of what Christianity is. Christianity says, "God, you wouldn't even believe how much I need you." That's the Beatitudes. That poor spirit. I'm just a beggar. I am totally bankrupt. I have absolutely nothing to offer you. I am a just a blob of neediness. And God is the God that fills and rescues. It's that attitude that we learn about in the Beatitudes and Christian maturity is not about. Finally, I've my decisions are so morally upright that I don't need God to rescue me anymore. I'm not as dependent upon God as I used to be. That's not it. We don't work ourselves out of a job of needing God. That's not Christian maturity. Christian maturity is realizing how much we need God even more and more and more and more. I realize now, after decades of following the Lord, how truly dependent I am upon him. That is Christian maturity. God already knows that we need him and acknowledging that in all these different areas of our lives, no matter who we are, what phase we're in. Oh, he loves it. He loves it when we see things like he sees things because he can only see things rightly and truly. For their reality. And then just to close the goal, the goal of all things, of course, and God says it again, it's to glorify God, right? I mean, we're here to exalt God, to edify the saints and evangelize the lost. God is worthy of Glory call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will what? Glorify me. We get saved. He gets the praise. We get delivered. He gets the glory. We get helped out. He gets thanked. We depend upon him, bless him, adore him. We're continually saved and he is continually praised as we work out our salvation. And he is Delighted to satisfy us. He's delighted to be there for us. He's delighted to provide for us as he sees fit with his limitless resources. And he's delighted to correct our wayward thinking so that we can just draw in and get closer with heartfelt worship. It is it is possible to come into the house of God. And even be a true believer and a saint. And worship Him in a way that insults Him. And so as we think about God's Word this morning and our place in it, what is our mindset? What? Who is like the Lord and what is He like? And who do we think we are? Who do we think we are if we think, you know what? God's church will just crumble if I stop going. If I stop giving what I gave, God's church will just crumble because He needs me. I'm a big giver. Or I serve, I'm a big server. And if I stop doing what I'm doing, the kingdom would suffer. We have that mindset. That's an insult. We only give what God has given us. Judgment begins in the household of God. So may our Sabbath celebrations and our times of praise and our teachings our sermons and As we partake of the Lord's Supper, may they just drip with gratitude for God. Not self-exaltation, just drip. Oh, God, you're so incredible. You're so long-suffering. You are so worthy. And all that I give, I give to you only because you have given it to me. And that is how we glorify him. With all our hearts. May God bless the preaching of his word. And now we have an opportunity to. Offer him our praise. And then as the saints of God. Come and commune. With the one and only living God.